This is They Create Worlds, episode 112, and landing on it. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We started off jumping for joy through 8-bit eras, 16-bit eras, and we were eyeing that jump to that 32- and 64-bit era, and we were like, you know, that's a bit too hard. We're going to need jetpacks. So we have those now, and we can now finally go and explore 32, 64, 128, eh, wherever we decide to stop. The bits, they don't matter anymore. Now it's all about the ray tracing. That's what they tell me. Really? The ray tracing? The real-time ray tracing, that's right. We have some guy named Ray, and we have to have him trace everything for us. I do not believe that's how it works, but sure, we'll just go with that. But this episode isn't about the latest and greatest going on in real-time rendering of lighting and sound. This is about platformers as they transition from that 16-bit side-scrolling era, occasionally isometric era, into that full-blown... Three dimensions through the miracle of polygons. Ah, yes. Polygons. The cause of and solution to all of modern day gaming problems. (laughs) Something like that. Just to recap where we left off, because it's important uh, where we're going forward. We kind of ended up with three major schools of platformers. And I'm not saying that every platformer fits in three major schools. I'm not making this an academic exercise where I'm classifying stuff. It's just like the games that we talked about, and we obviously had to leave many, many out. Some of them will get their own episodes later, I'm sure. We kind of ended up with three different schools. We had the Gotta Go Fast school that really started in the 16-bit era and was most exemplified by Sonic the Hedgehog, but also really Nintendo's kind of response in in Donkey Kong Country from Rare was really kind of from the same school. I wouldn't say that Sonic the Hedgehog was its primary inspiration or anything, but as we talked about, it was a game that was also optimized for moving through environments quickly and efficiently. So you kind of have this 16-bit gotta-go-fast mentality of platformer. We are moving through linear levels, some variation in where you can explore, but mostly linear levels. You had the PC game space, the computer game space, which was never very big in terms of platforming in general, especially in the United States, just because action games were not done so much on those platforms in the United States. Very different in the United Kingdom, of course, where you have this kind of cinematic platformer. That's not a precise term, but it's kind of games in the mold of Prince of Persia, where you have very fluid animation, often aided by rotoscoping, at least in a 2D context, and you have more movie-oriented kinds of action, very often based on an Indiana Jones kind of motif, where you're leaping and just barely grabbing ledges, and you're engaging in some action and some swashbuckling, and then you've got some light puzzle elements mixed in. So that's kind of the second school. And then you have a third school, which uh, I'm actually going to return to a little bit at the start here, because we didn't really talk about this in much detail, but it's really, it's kind of the Nintendo school or the Miyamoto school. 
of doing these kinds of games, which are a little more slow paced. So they're not quite in that gotta go fast kind of Sonic stuff's coming at you fast press A mentality. It's a little more laid back, but still very detail oriented, very expertly crafted and with a little bit more emphasis on opening things up and exploring a bit more. That really comes into focus, I think, especially in the 16-bit games. They got there a little bit in Super Mario Bros. 3, where you had the overworld maps and you had sometimes choices on which paths you took and oftentimes could bypass levels entirely. You had a little bit of it going on in there, but with Super Mario World, they really started exploring this more. This is when Miyamoto started with the idea of, I want people to return to stages. I don't want stages to just be one and done. I want there to be reasons for people to go back and go into the nooks and crannies of them. And so, of course, they came up with the secret exit system, where many stages had a second path to get out of the stage through uh, finding a key and placing in a keyhole. And then that would open up a different path on the overworld map. Sometimes that would mean a shortcut, allowing you to bypass elements of that overworld map to get to the end of the game. Sometimes it meant even going to completely special stages, literally some of them called special stages, that had nothing to do with beating the game, but were extra challenging, the Star Road stages and then the special stages that allowed you to interact with the gameplay elements of the game at a more advanced level than they wanted to put in just for people that are trying to beat the game, especially younger children. That's kind of where we're at. You also have the spinoffs and derivatives. Not everything is pure platforming. You have platform shooters in the vein of Mega Man, which is a game we talked about. We have arcade adventures with more of an item-gathering exploration element added in that we talked about in their very own episode a while back. Of course, you have Metroidvanias, and you don't have Metroidvanias without platforming being an element as well. So platforming is one of these things that kind of ties a lot of genres together, and there are a lot of hybrid genres, but kind of your purest platformers, at least in this time period, that I think are useful to categorize just for our purposes, is that Nintendo, a little slower paced, a little more emphasis on exploration and backtracking, Gotta Go Fast of Sonic and Donkey Kong Country, where you're zooming through stages, having all sorts of fun. And then your cinematic platformers, which are a little more about fluid motion, more realistic characters, more realistic settings, with some combat and puzzle solving thrown in, but less so than even a a platform shooter like a Mega Man. So, there you have it. Now you don't have to listen to the previous episode, because we just summarized the whole thing. Of course, you're probably listening in order, and so you've already listened to it, so... Now you're just frustrated because you learned you could have skipped a whole episode and just done the first however many minutes of this one, right? A whole seven. So yes. (laughs) Well, that'll change in editing, but... Fastest episode ever. Gotta go fast. That's true. (laughs) So now let's talk about the third dimension. The third dimension in platforming brings with it several different challenges. It brings with a control-based challenges. It brings in perception challenges. And it just brings in pure gameplay challenges. And when I'm talking about challenges, I don't mean built-in difficulty of games. I'm talking about it's a challenge for this kind of gameplay to be adapted into a space that has that pesky Z-axis in it. Because if we think back to the beginning, when we think back to Donkey Kong, as we talked about last time... The entire reason that jumping was a thing, because as we said, we didn't start with jumping and platforming, and jumping 
is not something that people do on a regular basis to get around their environments, is that you had a constrained two-dimensional space. You could only move forward, backward. You can move up and down as well, but you can't move side to side. So Miyamoto was thinking to himself, if I have a barrel rumbling towards me in like a narrow hallway, which would be the real world equivalent of a space in three dimensions that you can't actually avoid something in, what would I do? I would jump. What happens when you open up the world? Well, when you open up the world, you can just move left or right if that barrel's coming at you. I mean, if it's coming at you 100 miles an hour, you may not have time to react, but you're more likely to leap to the side than you are to try to jump over something, right? I mean, that is the human reaction. If something is coming straight at you, you leap to the side. You dive. You don't jump head on, right? I would hope not, unless you have that whole deer and headlights look. Right. Even if it's too late, even if it's the last second and you're frozen, your first instinct is going to be to get to the side, not get over the top, right? I mean, that's just how we work. It's very typical. There's actually, I think, studies, and this is alluded to in a lot of sci-fi, how a lot of captains still think in a primarily two-dimensional space when they engage in combat, and they don't take that extra Z-axis into account whenever they're moving their fleet and their ships around in naval combat involving Mm -hmm. submarines or spaceship battles involving deep space warfare. Right, exactly. So going up isn't our first instinct. Going left or right is our first instinct. And when you have a three-dimensional environment, you can now go left and right. So that's the first challenge. How do you get people to engage with the level that you're creating when you no longer have this very linear kind of almost amusement park setup where you are so constrained in your movement that you have to meet every obstacle head on instead of just sidestepping it, literally sidestepping it. And then there's just the depth perception issue. Even though your world now has a Z-axis and your world is in 3D, it is still a two-dimensional screen. As human beings, the, the majority of us that aren't vision impaired, have pretty decent depth perception. We're good at that. But the problem is the depth in a video game is not actual real depth of the kind that we are able to perceive in our everyday space because it is still a flat television where we are perceiving things and so the depth of a video game is not the same as the depth in a real world and it can be really really hard to judge the depth of stuff in a constrained setting like a video game that makes sense right it really does Whenever you look at an object that is in 2D, the way you try to see it as 3D is you go off of cues. Our Mm -hmm. vision of 3D that we see, of your typical 3D, that only goes so many feet in front of you. I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say it's somewhere around 15 feet, like the max level that you truly see 3D. And then past that point, you see everything as quote-unquote 2D, but you pick up on a bunch of little subtle clues as to where things are in perception to you. Case in point, you ever notice that the moon seems larger when it's closer to the horizon than when it's up in the sky? Yes, absolutely. Well, the reason behind that is because you know cognitively speaking that the moon is really big. 
hugely mind-bogglingly <laughs> big because it's so far down on the horizon you're like well that thing's so big i know it's so big and i know that the tree line is way closer oh my that thing's so big <laughs> right based off of sizing placement whether or not something is higher up or lower down that's how we pick up on whether or not something is closer or farther away and then we go off of how light interacts with different objects as far as shadows and how those are all cast. And right. we intuitively detect where things are in a 3D world based off of how those shadows are. Mm-hmm. So just look around you right now and try to really place where are those shadows? Move your head a little bit and see, huh, that shadow moves a little bit. And it gives you a little bit of a clue, at least in your mind, subconsciously, how things are. Where we get into problems, especially with these early 3D games, is that those clues, those 2D level clues, are really, really crappy. We do not have good shadow mechanics. Yes, exactly. You ever notice how a lot of early games have very simple shadows? Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that, because ambient occlusion... And ray tracing for shadows is really computationally intensive. And look at that. I told us we weren't going to talk about ray tracing, and we just did. Because this is exactly what we're talking about, how the new systems are going to have real-time ray tracing, which means that they're actually going to follow each individual beam of light and the shadows it cast in such a way that makes the environment much more realistically shadowed. So you see, you thought we weren't going to do it, but we came back to it. We were good at sneaking things in there. (laughs) Go on. But to bring it fully home, the early games, they don't have that. So you don't have all those clues. You're trying to figure out what that depth of field is based off of those 2D clues that you're used to in a environment. And then throw on top of that tank controls. Right. You're not going to figure out how to jump from point A to point B. You're lucky if you can move from point A to point B, let alone jump from point A to point B. Exactly. Then, you know, you throw in the further complication that your camera angles also are still often very two-dimensional because you're often looking straight behind your character or from above your character, which means you're not, when you're jumping a pit, you're not quite getting the right relation because you're not able to really examine the depth of that from all sides at once. You still often have to view a scene at a two-dimensional camera angle, even though it's a three-dimensional scene because you don't have the luxury of doing what we would do and just rotating our head all around, and then our brain processing all of that as a three-dimensional image. You wouldn't even get the cast shadow for your own character half the time. Exactly. So it's a real challenge. It's a challenge for that, and, and like Jeff alluded to with the tank controls, because, of course, controls had developed within the medium of games and the medium of popular games and the way games work. And what I mean by that is console games and uh, arcade games in particular less so computer games, developed on this idea of you are in a flat space, either presenting a top-down view or a side view, and all you're worried about is what direction you're moving at any given time. There's very little caring about velocity. You can speed up or slow down your character in certain games. I mean, Mario has a running mechanic where you can speed up by holding down the button. But your control inputs, all they care about are, are you moving? Yes, no. If yes, what direction are you currently moving? 
In other words, it's purely digital. It's purely on-off. When you have something like most joysticks of the time, because they were all digital joysticks, joysticks don't have to be this way, but the joysticks we're talking about were this way. When you're talking about joysticks on like an Atari VCS or in most arcade cabinets or a little later on, you're talking about a D-pad of the type that was pioneered by Nintendo. What you're talking about is basically you have contacts either on the four corners or if you're being really fancy, you might have eight-way movement and so you'll have them on the diagonals as well. You have contacts and you have your D-pad or your joystick and when you push that joystick in a particular direction or press a particular direction on your D-pad, that's completing the circuit and it's on-off. So the game's like, okay, now you're moving. So you're moving, you're moving, you're moving, you're moving. Oh, you let go. Circuit has been broken. Oh, you've stopped moving. On-off. Well, that's fine in a two-dimensional world, but it's terrible when you're trying to move in three dimensions because when you introduce that third dimension, there's a certain amount of momentum and uh, velocity and all sorts of other physics operations that you have to take into account when you're moving around and when you're jumping and all of that. And on-off controls, digital controls, just are not very well suited for that. These are kind of the major challenges. There are other challenges too, but these are kind of three of the big challenges that you have when trying to move from a two-dimensional space to a three-dimensional space. And as we'll see, there were several approaches to trying to get this done. So it's kind of convenient. We have three video game systems in the 32-bit, 64-bit era that matter. Sorry, Jaguar fans. And those are, of course, the Sega Saturn, the Sony PlayStation, and the Nintendo 64, or N64. You have three games that kind of carry on our three traditions that we talked about. All of these threes just work out very well. Obviously, you can classify things other ways, make it more complicated if you want, but we're going to keep this kind of simple. So we have three systems, we have three ways of doing things, and they pair up perfectly because each system has a flagship platform game, and each one of those flagship platform games sync up with one of our three basic modes of doing platformers. So look, we have a framework to approach things. How crazy is that? That's a novelty. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Wait a minute, we're doing this systematically instead of just hurling audio at the wall and seeing what sticks and making Jeff cry in post? And if you actually see me edit in post, you can see how much I cry. <laughs> right. So let's take a look at that. The first thing we'll take a look at is the Sony PlayStation. So the thing about the Saturn and the PlayStation both, actually, even though we're looking at the PlayStation first, is neither one were great 3D machines. In the case of the Saturn, that's because Sega didn't think we were there yet. And they weren't the only ones. That really wasn't short-sighted on their part. The entire video game industry did not think we were to the point yet technologically where in the mid-1990s you could create a polygonal-based home system that would be affordable. It was starting to creep into the arcades, but coin-operated hardware can be much, much more expensive than home hardware because a big corporation or a small arcade is buying it and then spreading out that cost one to four quarters at a time. In Sega's case, what that meant is they set out to create kind of the ultimate sprite-based video game machine. They figured this was the time to end the sprite era by going out in one final big blaze of glory on sprites. 
So it was really meant to be a sprite engine. It really wasn't meant to be three-dimensional or polygonal, I should say. They had some limited functionality in there for that, but it was more like, well, we can do a little bit here, but we can't do a lot. They were forced to change that, and they added another graphics coprocessor and made things way more complicated when Sony announced the specs for the PlayStation. Sony delivered a console that really could do 3D. It was based on a technology, actually, that had been created by a completely different division of the company way back in the day to do uh, 3D graphics for, like, newscasts and whatnot. Ken Kutaragi saw this and adapted this technology into a video game technology. That's a story we'll get to someday. We haven't done a full Sony story or a PlayStation story. We're not going to do one tonight, but that's just a sneak preview. So they had a system that could do it, but it couldn't do it great. It could generate polygons, but it still only had two megabytes of video RAM. The bus, the communication between the CPU, the GPU, and the video memory was kind of funky. I'm not a technical guy. I can't explain it in detail, but basically they already didn't have much video memory and the ability to access that video memory quickly to do calculations for 3D was even more limited by the pipeline of the system and the way the various components of the system communicated with each other on the bus and on the board. Did they have a shared bus? I think to a degree they did. Now, I haven't researched the PlayStation specs in depth before this episode, so someone may point me out that I'm wrong there. But there was some sharing, especially, and we'll get to why this was important, especially at the app level. Because one of the things that Sony did in order to make the system more palatable to developers is they created a very large library of APIs. So most people were dealing with the system not at the hardware level, but at the API level and an abstract software level. And the APIs were particularly bad about how they spread out communication. So that's an imperfect answer, but it was kind of nuts. By necessity, I mean, it's not that they were bad hardware designers. It's just these are the compromises you had to make to get a polygonal system out there in this time period at an affordable cost in the home. That's why you'll notice when you play a lot of PlayStation games, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, that you usually have 3D polygonal character models, but you often have pre-rendered backgrounds that are two-dimensional. We're looking at you, Final Fantasy VII and Resident Evil. Yep, those are the two big ones. Those are the ones that definitely come to mind immediately. So you often have this kind of three-quarters view You often had fixed or very limited camera angles, and the reason for that is there was enough oomph there to get your characters into a space that was three-dimensional and create them in polygons, but you couldn't really create backgrounds in polygons, and so you were stuck with 2D backgrounds superimposed over three-dimensional space, which meant that by necessity you had to limit your camera angles Because even though the collision detection was in 3D, your background wasn't, so you had to cheat. Neither of them had systems that were perfectly good at doing full three dimensions. You either had to constrain what you were doing, or you had to really dial down the detail. You could do a full three-dimensional background if you wanted a polygonal background, but you're losing a lot of cycles, you're losing a lot of processing power to that exercise. 
So that means fewer polygons, less detailed environments, if you're going to go that route. That brings us to the PlayStation's kind of first defining three-dimensional platformer. And that's Crash Bandicoot from a teeny-weeny little company called Naughty Dog. Teeny-weeny? At the time, they were. Not anymore. Naughty Dog was really just two people at this period in the early 1990s. Literally started as just two people. Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin. These guys were high school students together. They met and bonded over a shared love of programming, a shared love of video games. And they decided to band together to try to create computer games. Because, of course, there's only two of them. Two guys can't really go out and try to create a complicated console game. Plus, this was kind of in the in-between period when Atari had crashed and Nintendo hadn't really picked up all the way yet. So they start working together on some Apple games. They start on Apple computers. Uh, They actually even made one for the Apple II GS, which uh, nobody used then moved on into Amiga and PC compatible. They attracted the attention of Electronic Arts, which published a role-playing game of theirs, Rings of Power, which didn't do great, but they were impressed enough. Electronic Arts was impressed enough that they gave them an opportunity to work on the 3DO console. Another one of those also ran 32-bit systems. The 3DO company was its own company, but it was very closely tied to Electronic Arts at its beginning because Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts, also founded the 3DO company and it actually started out as a subsidiary within Electronic Arts before it got spun out. We talked about this, I believe, probably in one of our EA episodes. The board was just a wee bit unhappy that the computer game company that made its buck porting games to every system imaginable was suddenly trying to get into hardware. They worked on a 3DO game. It's the 3DO, so that didn't really go that well either. But they met Mark Cherney when they were working on Way of the Warrior, who is a truly legendary figure within the video game industry. He was a hotshot player as a teenager who became a hotshot programmer as a teenager. Like, he started working for Atari at 17. Creator of Marble Madness at Atari... Then he just went over to Japan, because why not, worked for Sega for years. And of course, he's still a legend today. He is the lead hardware architect on the PS4 and the PS5. This is one of those rare cases. It is incredibly rare within the video game industry for anyone to have a career spanning nearly 40 years. Quite astounding. It is even rarer for somebody to be very important in programming and hardware design over a 40-year period, because that stuff changes so much over time that even if you still kind of understand it, when you're brought up in an earlier era, you're used to things being done a certain way, and you can kind of transition, but, you know, the people that came up in the new environment are naturally just usually kind of better than you, only because they started learning it when their brains were younger and more pliable, et cetera, et cetera. So most people that have been around that long tend to be in uh, creative positions today, design positions, or upper-level management positions where they're not really getting their hands on stuff as much. But this guy, who started working at Atari in like 1982, 1983, today is the lead architect on Sony's big consoles. I mean, that's just, that's a career. I mean, he's just a genius. He is probably one of the purest geniuses to ever work in the video game industry, just It's astounding. But anyway, during this in-between period, in between the work at Sega and the work at Sony, 
he was brought in by Universal Interactive Studios. We did an episode on Sillywood. We did an episode, a couple of episodes, on this unlikely merger of Hollywood and video games and how all of these media companies got very excited and tried to get into the video game industry. And so we talked about Universal Interactive in that context. We talked about them at that time. Universal, big movie studio, wants to get into video games. They found Universal Interactive Studios. They take a different approach than some companies do, though. It's a very smart approach. They brought some talent in, producing talent, like Mark Cherney, most significantly. And then rather than try to build their own expertise, they kind of did it more in the manner that a big movie studio might work with a talented production company like, for instance, how Universal used to work with Amblin Entertainment, which was Steven Spielberg's production company before he founded DreamWorks. I mean, Amblin still kind of exists, but DreamWorks is the big one now. So they kind of took that same model. It's like, we'll bring some talent in-house to serve as producers who know the video game industry, who know what's going to work and can provide guidance. And we'll provide space on our lot, because that's something they would do for, say, Amblin Entertainment as well. Steven Spielberg, when he was affiliated with Universal through Amblin, had an office on the Universal lot where he could come in to work every day, even though he wasn't an employee. So we'll provide studio space. We'll provide experts. But then we'll let the talented video game studios do this stuff themselves. We're not going to buy their studios. We're not going to acquire their studios. We're not going to establish our own studios and micromanage them. They understood, unlike some of these other companies, that they were in the movie business and the video game business is a different thing. So they'd be facilitators instead of being full on bosses of this new thing. So, of course, very famously, two very significant studios got their start this way. Naughty Dog is one of them and then Insomniac is the other. We could talk about Insomniac and Spyro because that's another platform game. We're not going to because we only have so much time and only so much focus. But both Naughty Dog and Insomniac really got their big breaks by being affiliated in this way with Universal. So Mark Cherney got to know them during this 3DO production, was very impressed with them. So got Universal to say, okay, fine, we're going to invite you out. We're going to give you space on the lot. We're going to sign you to a deal for like six games or something like that. And come to the lot, work on the lot. Cherney will be your point of contact. He'll help you out, but we're not going to bother you too much. Just make something good for us. Make some good games for us. So that's what they did. They loaded everything up for a cross-country trip because they were in Boston. That's where they were located, and they were invited down to the lot, so they had a cross-country trip. It's going to take them three days or so to get from Boston to Los Angeles to uh, be part of this. During that trip, they had a lot of time to discuss. They drove down in a car together. I mean, they're still small time at this point. They're thinking, okay, well, we've got this new polygonal stuff coming in. They figure we're getting universal support, so we're going to be able to do something bigger. We're going to be able to hire more people. We're going to get better development stations, etc. Way of the Warrior had really been kind of a Mortal Kombat kind of knockoff. So they thought to themselves, okay, well, we've knocked off that. Why don't we try knocking off some kind of action game instead? Okay, well, that's fine. But if we're going to do this for real, if we're going to have a real team, if we're going to be big time now, let's not just make it a knockoff. We need to, for once in our lives, add something truly original to the mix. Okay, well, what about going 3D? Because at this time, you had Virtua Fighter, you had Virtua Racing, you had Ridge Racer coming in kind of in this early 90s period. 
these kind of genres were going polygonal. Fighting games were going polygonal. Racing games were going polygonal. Action games had not gone polygonal yet. So, okay, here's our place to make our mark. We'll do something in 3D. What's that going to look like? How do you do that? They figured that the systems weren't yet powerful enough to really do 3D well and also have it be well animated. So they're like, okay, we want to do something fast. We want to do something interesting. You know, something Sonic-like, except in 3D. Well, how do you do that? Well, Sonic's running all the time. If you're having him run in 3D and you're having him go through stages that are still kind of constrained, because we think we want to do stages that are constrained because that limits our polygon count because we don't have to render full environments. We only have to render what our camera's going to see as the stage is moving instead of rendering an entire environment. That saves more polygons for our main character so he can be more expressive. Okay, so he has to be running either away from us or towards us. That's the only way to do 3D in this kind of constrained space where we're narrowing the environment. So they started calling it the Sonic's ass game, even on this initial trip, because they figured that if the character has to be running towards the camera or away from the camera, towards the camera is just not going to work. You have to see what's coming in front of you to be able to avoid it. So they figured they'd be looking at the backside of the character a lot. It was never the code name, but that was kind of their unofficial way of describing it to themselves somewhere around Utah as they are making this cross-country trek from Boston. The Sonic's ass game. So they decide that they're going to do a protagonist that is in a similar vein. Sonic is an anthropomorphic character. Anthropomorphic characters are very popular in platformers in this time period, so they settle on the Bandicoot, and that is how we get the character of Crash Bandicoot. Crash Bandicoot is the extension of kind of that Sonic style of gotta-go-fast gameplay. And it was for exactly the reason that I already intimated. These systems couldn't really render full 3D environments at detail and speed. You could theoretically do a full, immersive, open-world kind of 3D polygonal environment, but if you did so, you were going to lose speed because of all the rendering that had to be done, and you are going to lose detail because you have to draw way fewer polygons. So they decided to create narrow, constrained stages where you're generally running towards or away from stuff because then they don't have to render much in the background and they can focus all of their attention on their main character because they wanted an expressive cartoon-like main character. They thought that that was going to be pretty important, and it makes sense because mascot games were all the rage on the 2D systems. One of the things that made those characters memorable was how expressive they could be. Sonic was memorable, for instance, for the way he tapped his foot when you stopped moving. It's just a shorthand way of giving the character some attitude and some personality. So that kind of stuff's important, but you can't do that in a 3D kind of space unless you're using a lot of polygons. So they created their forced scrolling, narrow, view-from-behind stages so that they could focus more on the polygons. Even then, though, they were running into real problems. They just couldn't get the speed going, and it's because of that bottleneck I told you. The Sony PlayStation was meant to be entirely programmed through a series of application programming interfaces, APIs. Sony was very afraid that they would not be able to entice studios to their system unless they made it super easy to use. Obviously, the exact opposite of what they've done with every system since. But when they were the new kid on the block, when they weren't successful, 
when they had no street cred at all, they figured that the only way that people were going to use their system and agree to make games on their system was if they didn't have to spend a lot of effort figuring out how the system worked. So they created these APIs to make it super duper easy, but it also, of course, restricted the programmer. It locked them in to a particular way of doing things with the hardware that was not necessarily optimal for everything. And it created a bottleneck because anytime you add a layer of abstraction in programming, your program is slower because that's additional stuff that has to be passed back and forth. These days, systems are so powerful, it doesn't matter as much as it used to. You can have many layers of abstraction and you don't notice it in your final product because your hardware is so fast it can handle all of that. This is why today nobody does assembly anymore. Nobody knows how to program an assembly anymore. Unless you're a diehard fan. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's very rare. You can go your whole life as a professional, well-paid, highly successful programmer without ever learning assembly on any of the systems you work on. 25 years ago, that would be impossible because 25 years ago, if you did everything through high-level languages, interpreted languages, yeah, it's good for, it was good for some stuff, but for some things it would just be too slow because you're losing that interpretation time, that translation time. So the problem with the API is that the communication between the CPU, the API, and the GPU was much slower than the GPU could actually run calculations. The GPU was being hamstrung by the need to route everything through this API. So what Ruben and Gavin did, because they were very talented programmers, is they figured out how to do what Sony did not want you to do. They figured out how to bypass the API entirely and just have direct communication between their code and the hardware the GPU, the CPU, the video memory. And that got it fast enough that they could actually do it. They still had to use all the tricks, like limiting the, the scope of the levels and all of that, but they actually had a game that could play pretty fast and pretty well on a PlayStation now. So that's part of what set Crash Bandicoot apart from so many of the games that came out in the very early days of the PlayStation, is that because they were breaking the rules and getting at the power of the hardware because they were talented guys, they were able to create a game that was faster and more dynamic and better animated and more interesting than a lot of their contemporaries. It also gave them a unique opportunity because nobody was really doing mascot-style platformers on the system because, again, the system wasn't very conducive to that in three dimensions, and Sony absolutely didn't want people wasting time on sprite-based games, especially in the beginning they were very insistent that games made for the PlayStation actually show off the unique attributes of the PlayStation, which is primarily being able to draw polygons. There really wasn't a mascot-style game. Now, at this point, you have to remember that Sony didn't really have any internal development. They were relying almost entirely on third parties to provide software because they were not traditionally in the video game business they had an arm called Sony ImageSoft that had not been very successful, and they didn't really have the infrastructure, the expertise they needed to create first-party releases. So in the beginning, in the early days, they were very reliant on other companies. None of those other companies had created a mascot platformer game in the vein of a Sonic. So Sony Computer Entertainment America latched onto that and really supported the whole Crash Bandicoot thing. Now, that was less true in Japan, 
Ken Kutaragi, who headed the whole PlayStation thing, he was somewhat of a possessive and even a little bit jealous kind of guy when it came to this kinds of things. And he was not in any way happy to be upstaged or was not in any way interested, I should say, in being upstaged by the work of another company. He was adamant that Crash Bandicoot would receive no special treatment, no special promotion. I mean, they were still going to do the game, obviously, you know, let Universal release it. But Sony Computer Entertainment, unlike Kudaragi, was like, okay, this is great. This is our answer to Mario and Sonic. So even though he was never an official mascot of Sony, because he wasn't a Sony character, and he's still not a Sony character, because through a bunch of strange circumstances with rights here and there, Crash Bandicoot's actually owned by Activision Blizzard now. That's a long story because Crash Bandicoot was Universal Interactive Studios, and then Universal was purchased by Vivendi, a French conglomerate, and then Vivendi bought Avos, which had Blizzard, and Vivendi bought Activision uh, and created Activision Blizzard, and then Activision Blizzard became independent again from Vivendi. So (laughs) the point is, because of all of that, Activision Blizzard now owns the Crash Bandicoot franchise, and things like the Insane Trilogy re-release that have come out recently have come out from Activision Blizzard as a result. So he was never an official mascot because he wasn't a Sony character and he he never will be a Sony character. He still hit that kind of same sweet spot as a Mario or Sonic, which is why Sony Computer Entertainment America decided to capitalize on that and did a very famous commercial where Crash, kind of one of these mascot suits, but it's supposed to be the real Crash, shows up outside of the driveway of Nintendo headquarters And, you know, was yelling, hey, Mario, get down here. I'll take you on. That's not direct quotes, but of course, we'll put that commercial in the show notes. It's one of the more noteworthy Sony commercials because he kind of became an unofficial mascot and was good for marketing purposes. That's one move into 3D. That's taking the Sonic style, gotta go fast, mascot kind of gameplay and translating it into a 3D space. Next, let's look at this kind of cinematic platformer. Because that's something that makes sense to bring in to kind of a three-dimensional space, because it's all about realism and fluidity of movement and action and puzzle solving and platforming all together. So it's more about something feeling tangible and real than it is about it being as well animated or as fast or as crazy. It can be a little slower It can be a little more abstract and still kind of work. And of course, the great example of that is our Sega Saturn entry, though it is not on the Sega Saturn it became famous. It's just that that's the system that it was started for. And that, of course, is Tomb Raider. We've already done Tomb Raider in pretty good depth in our IDOS episode, so not going to spend a huge amount of time on this here. But it was the same kind of thing. IDOS had been a loyal Sega developer for some time now. As the next generation of systems were coming along, they really wanted to stick with Sega because they felt like Sega had helped them hit the big time, make that transition from being a computer game company to a console company. More specifically, the core design portion of what became IDOS, because when Tomb Raider was started, it wasn't IDOS yet. It was Core Design, which was one of several companies that were bought to turn this video compression company, IDOS, into a major computer game slash video game publisher. We cover all of that in a different episode, so we won't do it here. I'll link it in the show notes. As always. So Core Design, specifically, not so much IDOS, but Core Design, 
felt that Sega had really helped them hit the big time by uh, supporting them and accepting their games on the Sega CD and the Sega Genesis. So they wanted to stick with that, and the Saturn was coming, and they wanted to do something really special for the Saturn. They knew that this was going to be a quantum leap forward. They knew that 3D polygons was becoming a thing. So they wanted to do something three-dimensional. They wanted to do something of the time that would just be very big and bold. And the inspiration was Toby Guards, an artist and designer at the company, who had been working on this concept involving tombs, pyramids, ancient Egypt, whatever. The head of core design was like, that sounds great. Let's do that. So that's how the development began. And it was very much influenced by Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia was one of their primary influences in terms of gameplay. If you look at Tomb Raider, you know, it's very different from Crash. The environments are a little sparser. The uh, characters are a little less animated. They really try to let the polygons shape the character, quite literally, in the case of Lara Croft. It's not as fast action, though there is some action in it, but it's taking that Prince of Persia approach. First, focus on the character and focus on their animations. We're creating an acrobatic character, just like the prince in Prince of Persia was acrobatic. We want to make sure that those acrobatics look good, look real. We want a character that fluidly moves from position to position. We want a character that is realistically human proportioned, even though we won't necessarily be able to animate it as well as a Sonic or even a Crash Bandicoot is animated. We want those polygons to all fit together and move realistically. And then, because we also want to sell millions of copies, we're going to take those realistic proportions and, like, triple the boob size. But that's a story for another time. And then we want to put puzzle solving in these environments, these tombs. We can make these environments big and somewhat sparse and have the interest come from exploration and puzzle solving. So it's okay if maybe it's not as vibrant a world, intricately detailed a world as a a sprite-based world would be, because The spaces themselves, the environments, and the puzzle solving within those environments is what will drive the interest. And then, just as in Prince of Persia, let's not just have it be that. Let's mix in some action amongst our exploration and puzzle solving as well. So let's give her the dual pistols and give her a bunch of predators that are running around to to shoot at to break things up a little bit. That's really the cinematic platformer approach to going 3D. It's full 3D environments, full polygonal environments, unlike Crash Bandicoot. They have to make some other sacrifices to get there, but because slow, deliberate, realistic animation and navigation of huge spaces, even if they're not as detailed, is kind of our main point, it works. And Tomb Raider really works because of the character. I mean, let's face it, the reason that game got super popular was the way Lara Croft was sexualized and marketed. I mean, it's it's kind of funny to think today. I mean, you look at Tomb Raider today from the perspective of someone who maybe didn't grow up with that, who's a little younger, and they're like, oh, yeah, that mess of triangles is real sexy, yeah. I mean, it's, it's vaguely ridiculous. <laughs> but you have to understand, no video game character occupied a space like that before. There were quote-unquote sexy video game characters before, But it's the way hand-drawn art can be sexy. There's a layer of abstraction there so that we don't really connect that so much with a real human. Even though Lara Croft 
looks like some kind of cyclopean horror today because of her low polygon count. She felt tangible and real in a way that a video game character had not to that point for the most part. And her proportions were fleshed out in a way that allowed the player's imagination to fill in the gaps if they were so inclined. So she became a superstar. As a result, Tomb Raider became huge. And of course, we go into more detail on that with IDOS uh, in our IDOS episode. So that's kind of our second approach. That's taking the cinematic platformer into 3D. And it started on the Saturn. It was very briefly exclusive on the Saturn. But of course, the Saturn flopped for a variety of reasons. The PlayStation is the console that won, and Tomb Raider was not an exclusive. So today, Tomb Raider is much more associated with the Sony PlayStation because more people played it on that system first. Just technically, it was a Saturn game first with a very small window of exclusivity. So, of course, that brings us to our boys at Nintendo. Nintendo had been doing some interesting experimenting at the tail end of the Super NES period. Now, obviously, we had the Donkey Kong Country thing, but that was Rare. I mean, Rare was doing it for Nintendo at Nintendo's behest, published by Nintendo. But that's not experimentation going on within Nintendo's own development apparatus, Nintendo uh, EAD, uh, where Miyamoto was uh, hanging his hat. Nintendo had entered into partnership in the early 1990s with a company called Argonaut out of the United Kingdom, founded by Sir Jez Son. Son was another one of these prodigies. He was so good at programming and so good at the math behind programming that he could do fairly decent three-dimensional polygonal stuff on very relatively primitive computer systems. He had done the Starglider games on 16-bit computers, Atari ST, Amiga, that kind of generation of computers. First Starglider was wireframe, but the second Starglider in the late 1980s was actually filled polygons. Was it slow? Yeah, I mean, the frame where it wasn't the greatest, it wasn't fast action, but he was just so good at 3D, and he surrounded himself, hired other employees that were so good at 3D. They took up the challenge of trying to do 3D on the Game Boy. Nintendo was like, yeah, I don't know about that, but that got them together, and then Sonya famously told him that we think we can create a processor for you that will allow polygonal gameplay on the uh, Super Nintendo, on the Super NES. That's how you got the 3DFX chip. That 3DFX chip was created by the people at Argonaut, and then the games created with it were a partnership between Nintendo and Argonaut. So Argonaut relocated a couple of their employees, most significantly Dylan Cuthbert, to Kyoto, to Nintendo, and they worked with people within Nintendo EAD, which was Miyamoto's group. The Brits did the programming and the heavy lifting on the 3D math. And then the Nintendo people brought in that Nintendo design sensibility from their side. Nintendo really had no expertise with the third dimension at this point. So this was a way for them to get that expertise with the third dimension. This is where Star Fox came from. Stunt Race FX, not quite as well known as Star Fox, not quite as big a hit. But that's also where that came from. It's also a bit where Super Mario World 2 came from. Super Mario World 2 was already in development when the Donkey Kong Country bombshell dropped. You know, this idea that we can pre-render polygons 
and then render it down to something that the relatively weak Super NES could work with, could process. That was clearly going to be the future, but they didn't have time to go that route. But they went a route that was almost as interesting, since they, they were like, okay, we can't get photorealistic. But because we can't get this kind of realistic polygonal look, we'll use the Super FX chip or the FX2 at this point, slightly improved version, and we'll go full hand-drawn. Full hand-drawn like a child was doing crayon drawings. So that's how you got Yoshi's Island Super Mario World 2's very distinctive palette. And this is also a game where they're also starting to break away because, you know, they're not necessarily doing with this with the British crowd. Their people are doing this on their own, and it's not a three-dimensional game. But they're starting to use some of those techniques similar to what had gone on with Rare with the pre-rendering to create something interesting. And, of course, this is also a game where they started opening up exploration even more because we talked about secret entrances in Super Mario World. Well, Super Mario World 2 has red coins that you can collect throughout the stage. Boy, does that sound familiar moving forward into the three-dimensional games, right? Oh, yeah. Super Mario Maker and Super Mario Maker 2 take great advantage of that one. Well, and I'm just talking about all the 3D games to come, you know, Mario 64 and Sunshine, you know, collecting red coins. They're starting this process of opening things up with Super Mario World 2, where they're already starting to work with these advanced techniques. Nintendo is using Argonaut as a means to an end. They're using them to learn how all of this stuff works, to give their own internal programmers some idea of how to work in three dimensions, and then they're going to cut Argonaut out of the partnership. I mean, it's not contract breaking or anything. I mean, they're well within their rights. It's just, you know, okay, you've got some expertise we don't. We're going to learn from you, and then we're going to turn around and, and do that ourselves. So there's some controversy in relation to Nintendo's own move into the third dimension, which is meant to be in tandem with their N64, their Ultra 64, as it was known in the early days, before they changed the name. This was a partnership with Silicon Graphics, and they were aiming to make the next next generation of systems. Because, of course, uh, very famously, the PlayStation and the Saturn are 32-bit in the N64 64-bit. Now, you can't just go by bits. There's a lot of other stuff. There's some things that the N64 does well, but there are some things that actually does uh, worse than a PlayStation does, because there's much more into what goes into architecture than just that. But because it is a more powerful system, at least on the surface, it has the potential to maybe have better 3D environments than the PlayStation can and, and do real 3D environments. Now, conversely, something it doesn't do as well is texturing. You'll notice that in N64 games, usually individual polygons are very often solid colors. They don't do a lot of texturing on a lot of surfaces, and that's because for a variety of reasons, it actually draws textures worse than the PlayStation does. So PlayStations tend to have more detailed backgrounds than their pre-rendering, while N64 games will have these real 3D environments, but these real 3D environments are often bland because of the way the system does textures. That's a bit of a tangent. You can only imagine what would have happened if they got married and got together. Yeah, right, exactly. Because, of course, they were going to work together until that very famous fallout that I, I know will eventually make part of an episode. Or five, as we do. Oh, so this summer we got to do a five-parter just to break tradition. Oh, God. <laughs> well, it won't be a five-parter, I'm sure, but... If there's a subject that can uh, withstand more than two episodes, it's certainly Sony getting into the video game business. Anywho, 
So there's some controversy about the beginning of Nintendo's entry into this three-dimensional space because uh, Jez San, the founder of Argonaut, like I said, he claims that his guys at Argonaut put together a demo of what a three-dimensional Mario game could look like. They didn't use Mario in it. They actually used Yoshi in it. They were basically trying to combine ideas from Super Mario World and Super Mario Kart some racing, driving kind of stuff as well, and render this all in a 3D environment and kind of show off how that would look. Nintendo looked at this and said, thank you, uh, very interesting, but no thank you. We're going to go another direction. And then Argonaut goes off and replaces Yoshi and, and does a game called Croc that's a 3D platformer. And there are some similarities just in the, the look and feel of Croc and Mario 64. Jason claims that's because, okay, they took our demo and basically just, we're not going to do this with you, but we're going to steal the way you did things and, and make our own game. Did they? Um, you know, maybe a little. I don't know. There's some controversy there with Jason saying that, you know, they really took advantage of his company. Whether they did or not, it's definitely true that this is around the time that Nintendo not only cut ties with Argonaut, but also brought their Kyoto people like Dylan Cuthbert in-house at Nintendo to continue working at Nintendo after the split. So Miyamoto is taking a, a different approach, as he often does, to kind of these other approaches that we've looked at that are exploration action puzzle solving based on the case of Tomb Raider or fast action limited movement with an environment like Crash Bandicoot is. Like the people at IDOS, he's really concerned about making it feel right first. And the thing is, Mario 64 was developed in tandem with the N64 hardware. They did not know as they were creating the game how much power the final N64 would have because that was in a kind of constant state of flux throughout the process. So they spent most of their time figuring out how to get the pieces right. They weren't concerned about what the environments would be, what the plot would be, what the objective would be. What they were trying to figure out is, how do we move him? What are the points of articulation? What feels right in the look of him? How is the camera going to move around him? How are we going to position the camera so that the player is comfortable? How are we going to move him? I don't know exactly what point they knew that the N64 was going to have an analog stick, but I mean, certainly during this period, they knew they were going to have that groundbreaking analog stick and that they were going to have degrees of control that you did not have in 2D games or even in these early games like Tomb Raider and Crash Bandicoot, which are still using digital inputs because the PlayStation did not have an analog input. Much later, 1999, they released the DualShock controller because of the N64 coming along. But, you know, at the beginning, there is no analog control in a PlayStation controller. It's, it's strictly digital. So they spent all of their time experimenting with that. They weren't creating a game. They were just creating a set of best practices, essentially, for how to navigate a 3D space. Dylan Cuthbert is very involved in this, the guy that I was talking about before, also programmers and animators within EAD including a guy named Koizumi, whom is now the person that runs the entire Mario franchise now that Miyamoto is in a much higher management role. So they're working with this. They're figuring this out. They come up with some interesting ideas. I mean, they kind of come up with a, a camera system that mostly works. 
they did decide, talking about that depth problem, they realized that they needed to give everything a shadow. They decided not to err on the side of realism. They didn't want to do realistic lighting. It didn't matter where the light sources were. They made sure everything had a shadow because they decided that shadow was too important, as we were talking about earlier in the episode, to our depth perception that you need the shadows there, whether it's realistic or not, to make the distances in the z-axis and the perception of the z-axis make sense. Obviously, they're just doing a lot of running around and exploring of environments, and I think that influences the final game a lot. Miyamoto said in interviews uh, at the time that he really wasn't interested in creating an on-rails experience. And you can see that the Mario games were, even though they were very much on-rails on the whole, they were getting less and less on-rails as they got more sophisticated. There's just, in a two-dimensional world, there's only so much off the rails that you can get. But he was much more interested in the idea of giving players a set of tools and letting them create their own style of play. That's what really appealed to Miyamoto, and that's what he decided to make Mario 64 an expression of. He wanted to give them spaces to navigate, but he didn't want to prescribe their method of getting through a stage. They started out by doing some linear things, and you can still see the vestiges of that in the Bowser stages, which they decided to keep more linear because they did ultimately decide that they needed some boss encounters to kind of close this thing off at the end. And they wanted to keep those linear and less exploration focused so that you were finally completing an objective. He just wanted to give them a space to play in with all these new 3D tools and very little handholding. And I think that's why they came up with this idea of item collection being the central focus, gathering these 120 stars. Don't have to gather all 120 to beat the game, but if you really want to feel like you've accomplished everything the game has to offer... You know, you're going to go and get those 120 stars. I thought I got 120 stars just to see Yoshi. <laughs> well, yes, you could. You could. I got all 120 stars. It's the only Mario game where I got all the stars. I haven't gotten all the stars on any of the subsequent ones. But, you know, I was younger than I had more time to bang my head against the wall. There you go. <laughs> so I think both through a combination of that primary drive... And also the fact that they had to wait so long before they started working on environments and challenges and puzzles and whatnot, because they didn't know what the final specs were going to be. And so once they knew, they just kind of threw the get of the game at the last minute. The game is, there's not a plot. Let's bake a cake for Mario. There's no plot. There's very little focus. There's these different worlds uh, behind paintings, all of which are very interesting on their own, but don't connect in any real way. So it's very atypical as a game in that sense. I mean, even compared to other Mario games. It's also not perfect because there are enemies in the stages, but oftentimes the enemies are not well utilized in a lot of the stages because of this problem that we're talking about. It's like if the Goomba's coming relentlessly towards you, in a 2D Mario game, you have to jump or throw a fireball at it or it's going to get you. Whereas if there's a Goomba in one of these games, you can just move to the left and <laughs> you're safe. Pretty much watch any speed run of Mario 64 and you can just see how many monsters they actually fight. Only the ones they are forced to. Well, yeah, and there are very few of those. A good example of that is Womp's Fortress, the second level. At the top of Womp's Fortress, uh, when you're in one of the modes where you're not fighting the Womp King up there, there's a bullet bill launcher up there. It's completely useless and pointless. There's no way the bullet bill's coming out of it will ever hit you. 
a lot of people probably don't even realize it's up there. I mean, you can go up there and not even realize it's there. It launches bullet bills, but they're nowhere near you. You know, later Mario games, they refine this. You know, a lot of the bullet bills will home after you, and that makes them a threat. But they didn't have that in this first one, you know. There's a lot of elements that don't quite gel, but what does gel is they have these very diverse environments, these very diverse moves and actions you can take, all of these nooks and crannies to explore, and all of these wonderful items to collect. Even though there's a lot of flaws in Mario 64, this kind of idea of interactivity and creativity of the player over slick game design by the developer kind of sets the tone for how a lot of 3D games polygonal platforming games are done in this era and in the couple of eras to follow. A lot of games that follow up after Mario 64 become these collection games where you're within these little self-contained worlds, sometimes little, sometimes bigger, but you're within these self-contained worlds within the larger world, and it's all about exploring and collecting. Banjo-Kazooie is a prime example of that from Rare, and that's not surprising because they're working closely with Nintendo, so Banjo-Kazooie was meant to be their take on the Mario 64 kind of thing. But you also see it in other developers as well, and, and that gets us back to Naughty Dog, because Naughty Dog, after Crash Bandicoot and some of the other stuff they do on the PlayStation, they go independent from Universal. Basically, Sony is like, okay, you guys are the talent. Why are we dealing with this middleman, Universal? when all they're doing is marking up the price and, and selling it to us and they're not involved. You just had a contract for them to do X number of games. Your contract's been fulfilled. Universal has no hold over you because they have not bought you. Why are we going through Universal? Why don't we buy you guys? And you can just come develop for us directly and we'll cut out the stupid middleman. Sony acquires Naughty Dog in 2001, becomes a first-party studio. But they don't have any of the rights to Crash Bandicoot or any of these other characters because the publisher was not Naughty Dog, the publisher was Universal, they have the rights. So they have to make new characters, they have to make new environments, new everything on the PlayStation 2, and of course that's when they make the Jack and Dexter series, and you can see so much of the influence of something like Mario 64 in that. I'm not saying it's a clone, it's far from it. Uh, there's a lot of action elements that are definitely <laughs> un-Mario 64-like, for instance. But it's this idea of exploring these expansive stages and collecting things. It's like that becomes the new paradigm, and uh, Naughty Dog themselves very much embrace that with Jack and Dexter. So that's kind of the transition from 2D to 3D, and that's kind of what you see. You see the exploration action kind of Tomb Raider-style games, the Crash Sonic-style games kind of fall out. Now, Sega, of course, continues in that vein, and they create. Uh, Sonic Adventure on the Dreamcast. They skip the Saturn for a variety of reasons uh, in terms of main uh, mainline Sonic games, but they create Sonic Adventure, which is kind of a hybrid of the Mario 64 approach of exploring environments and collecting things with still more of the linear gameplay that made Sonic famous. There's parts of it that are just on rails because they're trying to recreate that kind of thing. And Sonic Adventure does okay. The series kind of loses itself after that. That kind of thing, other than Sega sort of trying to keep it going with later Sonic games, kind of falls by the wayside. And you're left with these kind of two styles, the collecting, exploring environments kind of thing that Nintendo represents and kind of this Tomb Raider style of puzzle, action, platforming, realistic characters, animation. These are kind of the two styles that you have. And Nintendo keeps refining their style. Sunshine is a game that's kind of controversial, Super Mario Sunshine. 
a lot of people hate it because they don't like this flood system, this artificial addition to who Mario is. I personally love it because I think it has a lot of the charm of Mario 64, but with more focused gameplay. They created the stages in such a way that there's still a lot of 3D exploring, there's still a lot of choose-your-own-path, but there's also more of a need to confront individual enemies, confront individual challenges. They tried to create elements of stages that narrowed your focus to small groups of platforms rather than just these wide-open vistas. They also tried to rekindle some of the 2D magic by having you go into these stages where you lose the flood pack and you're just jumping around all of these abstract platforms. Some of that stuff doesn't work quite as well, but Nintendo kind of tries to refocus, bring a little bit more design sensibility than Mario 64 had while still keeping it open. So I consider Mario 64 to be more of a rough prototype of this kind of gameplay in games like Sunshine and, and Galaxy and even Odyssey, really kind of refined that and gave you both, uh, the best of both worlds there. On the other side of things, the Tomb Raider side of things, of course, the Tomb Raider series really kind of lost its luster a lot, and uh, our good friends Naughty Dog actually became kind of the main company carrying this style of game forward because they wanted to do their own take at the action, platforming, puzzle-solving, combination thing when it got time to do the PS3. Again, even though they had the Jack and Dexter characters, uh, unlike the Crash Bandicoot situation, they didn't have to go to something new. They kind of felt that every time they migrated to new hardware, they should really come up with characters and situations that really illustrate the strengths of the new hardware and present a clean break with the past. So they didn't want to do another Jack and Dexter game. They did three on the PS2. They didn't want to do another one on the PS3 because they felt it was time for something different. And they figured now things are getting good enough that they can do realistic characters that really do look realistic, unlike Lara <laughs> on her Tomb Raider. They can do lush, realistic environments, and they can really make something more cinematic. I mean, we're drawing on. Tomb Raider a little bit from the video game space, but we're also, we're drawing on Indiana Jones, we're drawing on The Mummy, we're drawing on these kind of action-adventure movies, and of course that's how we get Uncharted. You have a series that's defined by a more fully developed hero in Nathan Drake, who also, because things are getting more advanced, can be fully voice-acted, which adds another dimension to things. We're talking about bringing in some of the innovations in action games. So even a bigger influence than something like Tomb Raider or Prince of Persia on Uncharted was Gears of War and Resident Evil 4. Because Resident Evil 4 kind of came up with the perfect over-the-shoulder camera angle for doing third-person action. Previous third-person games had been more distant, less immediate, and... Resident Evil 4 just created that over-the-shoulder view that was so perfect for third-person action. And then Gears of War comes along and uh, uses a very similar over-the-shoulder view as 4 did, but then also adds that complete cover system where you're running from piece of cover to piece of cover and sticking to cover. They didn't invent cover systems. They took it from other places. We talk about that in our Influential Games episode. Basically, what they did is they took the platforming of a Tomb Raider or a Prince of Persia, 
combined it with the modern action sensibilities of a Resident Evil 4 and a Gears of War, then put a whole layer of action cinema like Indiana Jones on top of that to create a wisecracking everyman hero, and you had Uncharted. The first Uncharted was good, but it was not brilliant because they were still learning the PS3 hardware. And the PS3 hardware was notoriously complex because it used a cell architecture. It had like eight daughter processors or something. And you had to balance the load between the CPU and the daughter processors and everything else. And it was just a nightmare. When they made the sequel Uncharted 2, they were able to fully harness the cell architecture, which they hadn't really been able to do in the first game. Uncharted 2 is still today, I think, considered one of the most brilliant games ever made. It was just so expertly paced. They got down the switch between platforming, puzzle-solving, dialogue-driven cutscenes, action-driven cutscenes, action-fighting, you know, shooting at things, ducking for cover. It's kind of the perfect distillation of this kind of philosophy, and it's kind of where platform games are now. I mean, obviously, you still have your Nintendo-style platform games. I mean, Mario Odyssey was very popular. But when you look at platform games today, you think of the Uncharted series. You think of The Last of Us, which is, of course, also Naughty Dog. You think of the rebooted Tomb Raider series, which is very different from the early Tomb Raiders and is far more similar to to something like the Uncharted series today. That's kind of where platforming has ended up and where it is now. You still get some whimsy, and of course you get the 2D throwbacks. We haven't even talked about the indie scene, and we're not going to, but you get Shovel Knight, for instance, which is just taking everything that was great about 8-bit platform games from Super Mario Brothers to Mega Man to Castlevania and just remixing it into something modern that is just so wonderful. Not even getting into the indie scene, which is keeping the 2D platformer alive. That's kind of where the platformer is today. It's a mix of action and gorgeous environments, jumping around and solving puzzles as you go. I'm sure there's people out there who are wondering this. Where does Assassin's Creed play into this? I think of Assassin's Creed as less of a platformer and more of a parkour kind of game. Assassin's Creed is more of a pure action game where you do run and and jump across rooftops and whatnot, obviously. But I would consider Assassin's Creed to be just on a slightly different track. It's more drawing from stealth action games, just adding a little bit of platforming on top of that rather than being a platformer with action elements. It's an actioner with some platforming elements. That's just personally. Okay. So really, we can really appreciate and understand how we've come from 2D platformers of, I need to just climb a ladder to get from point A to point B to, I'm exploring this (laughs) wondrous 3D world, collecting things, finding these nooks and crannies, climbing up and barely pulling myself up as the re-release Laura Croft <laughs> or exploring and discovering a ruined world in The Last of Us and even just enjoying throwbacks of 
I just want to do it old school with Celeste or Shovel Knight or Mm -hmm. uh, Bloodstained. Yeah. It's still a very vibrant genre that is still highly developed in today and has such a rich history behind it that I think many people do not fully appreciate. Yeah, I mean, somehow jumping has become kind of the defining video game move. You brought up Assassin's Creed, even though I consider that more of an action game than a platform game. It just brings up the very good point that you can't escape jumping. You can't escape platforms. They're everywhere. Even something like uh, Doom Eternal that was just released. Doom Eternal is very much a first-person shooter. It is very much a mow-down hordes of demons very fast. Even it has platforming puzzles in it. Even it has jumping and platforming puzzles. It's like pure platformers outside of the indie scene, maybe few and far between today. But there is platform DNA in almost every major game coming out today that takes place in real time that isn't, uh, you know, a turn-based game or, or something like that. You know, I just think there's something so satisfying about the gameplay of those early games. There's something so satisfying about how the way Mario jumped in Super Mario Brothers. There's something so satisfying about the way that Laura Croft pulls herself up on a platform. There's something so satisfying about how Pitfall Harry swung on vines across the screen that even though pure platforming is maybe not as big a deal as it used to be, it's such an inextricable part of modern video game DNA that you see bits and pieces of it everywhere. Just absolutely everywhere. That's certainly it. So, since we have covered platforms and all of its bouncing glory, what shall we discuss in our next episode? Well, I thought we'd go back to the the early, early days again, as we do from time to time, especially since uh, it's a most convenient well, since I did a lot of research on the early, early days for that book of mine that uh, is out and about these days, the first volume of my three-volume They Create World series. Myself and some other people on the Gaming Alexandria Discord have really been looking into some of the very first commercial computer games recently. You know, some of the very first games to come out in the the mid to late 1970s. And I thought it might be very interesting to go back to that beginning and look at the very start of the computer game industry and how that started to develop. Because it involved a lot of different mediums, from books to magazines to cassette tapes. It involved a lot of companies that didn't necessarily stick with it or companies that didn't necessarily become successful. Kind of the first wave is very different. The second wave, companies like Bruderbund and Online Systems became Sierra, stayed around for a while. A lot of the very early ones didn't. So just kind of looking at this primordial computer game industry that developed on microcomputers in the mid-1970s and see what kind of concepts they were doing, in what ways they were constrained, and how we kind of ultimately got out of that early mess and, and moved on to something more lasting. All right. So I guess we will look at Primordial Electronics next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com 
Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and through major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>